Thank you for listening to this Belly Up Sports Podcast Network product. Some said we go belly up, so we made it our name, and we're still here. Welcome to another episode of In the Can, which is part of the Barnburner Podcast Network. This is The Chief, and as always, through In the Cut, we'll be discussing movies, or as the snooty assholes of the world call them, films, and potentially TV shows as well. We are, after all, in the golden age of television, as Young Goat often says. Today I'm rolling solo, but I'll often be joined by other contributors and maybe even a few randos talk shop about one of my favorite things in the whole wide world and that is movies something everyone can enjoy also when you're done listening check out the website the barn burner at www.the-barnburner.com for any sort of article or any other topic your heart may desire i'm telling you guys we have everything we have something for everyone but all right you guys are here today to learn a little bit about a couple of movies that i saw So today I'm talking two movies that are so intertwined, so connected, that they had to be talked about in the same podcast. You just couldn't do a separate one for each. I am, of course, talking about Paddington Bear 1 and Paddington Bear 2. Just kidding. Uh, That's not the case at all, though. I hear the Paddington Bear movies are pretty dope, uh, well-made movies. And if you want to hear an animated CGI bear talk with a British accent, which who wouldn't? Uh, I highly recommend those. Um, I haven't seen them, but I I might run to the theater and see those soon. But what I really meant uh, and what I'll really be discussing is the 2003 cult classic, The Room, and the recent James Franco flick titled The Disaster Artist, which is a movie about the making of The Room. I realize that's a total head fuck. You guys will have to bear with me, and I'll try to set the stage for how these two movies even got made and sort of the backstory related to them. Because it is quite an interesting story and one that I didn't know, even as a pretty big cinemaphile, until The Disaster Artist was announced. So you're probably asking yourself, yo, Chief, why in the hell are they going to make an entire movie about the making of another movie that I've never fucking heard of? That's a great question. That's one that I wondered as well. Well, that's because what, uh, what The Room is, is what's called often a cult classic. So that, that's a movie that is not initially well-received does not do well in the box office. Uh, a lot of people don't see it, and it kind of goes underneath the radar, and it's either hated or just people don't see it. But then over the years, after it, it you know leaves the theaters and comes out on, on video or DVD or now Blu-ray, it gathers a devoted following over the years of just people watching it and spreading it via word of mouth. Um, they're kind of like a it's kind of like a Cinderella team in the tournament, just this this team that flies underneath the radar, and then you know once the March Madness tournament comes into play. Uh, everyone's all on board with it, and, and uh, it's, it's kind of the talk of the tournament. 
So examples of the cult classic, for instance, you might've heard of these, the movies like the Rocky Horror Picture Show, for instance, or the Big Lebowski, uh, Eraserhead, a David Lynch type movie. Um, These are movies where folks, you know, they gathered in the back of hole in the wall video stores and watched these over and over and over on VHS. Uh, And for the kids listening, a video store was a place where upon you could rent movies. Uh, Blockbuster was a classic one. And uh, sadly, those are no more, but uh, Hey, I'm all for the streaming. Honestly, like love streaming, love being able to watch movies all the time, uh, straight from the internet. I, I'm a huge fan of that, but there was something about going to the video store and walking around and making your pick, uh, making your pick for that movie. You're going to watch that night. And those were often where these cult classics were born from. So the room and, and sort of the genesis of it all, it all starts with a writer, director, and producer um, named Tommy Wiseau. So this guy moved to California to chase the Hollywood American dream. So a few important facts about Tommy Wiseau. And this guy is real. I highly recommend uh, you take an opportunity now or, or you know, soon after to Google him and just get an image of him. He's 5'9", just a super muscly old dude. And he has long black hair that he probably dies. And he's kind of an ageless looking dude often compared to uh, jokingly by a lot of people as a vampire. He kind of looks like a damn vampire. Like if a vampire existed, it wouldn't look like ones in twilight. It would look like Tommy Wiseau. So he's got this bizarre accent that sounds, has like hints of Eastern European, but no one knows where he's from. And he keeps his origin very secret. In fact, when he's asked about where he's from, he always says that he's from new Orleans that he grew up in new Orleans. Now his accent definitely does not sound like someone that's from new Orleans or someone was from the damn continental United States for that matter, but he says it with conviction, so people just believe him. The second important thing about Tommy Wiseau, he has what an unlimited source of money. So like, in, it, he funded the room from his own pocket. He has like a bank account with limitless source of money. It seems bottomless, and no one knows where he made it. So all bets point to something illegal, perhaps some trafficking. There's a lot of rumors that he's was trafficking some drugs or, or laundering money. Um, there's talk of him potentially being in a huge uh, car wreck with maybe a big Hollywood executive and he sued him and won a huge judgment. Uh, but no one knows where he made this money. And it's a, anytime he's asked, he's just very ambiguous about it. He says, don't worry about that. And I love that. I love just this ambiguity. This guy's created just a shroud of mystery around him. It's hilarious. So finally, no one knows how old this dude is. I mentioned how he looks older, but sort of ageless too. And it's true. He claims he was in his late 20s when he made the room in 2003, which would put him you know, nearing his 40s now. But most people think he was in his 50s, in fact, when making the, the room. And people have on Reddit and shit have tracked down his birth certificate and seem to have confirmed that. Look, like you really just can't tell how old he is. And again, once he's asked... He usually just says his infamous quote is, I'm your age, man. I'm, I'm, how, I'm however old you are. And you just sort of shrug your shoulders and move on because that's Tommy Wiseau being weird as shit. So Tommy moves to Hollywood, wants to be an actor. It's like his dream all along. Takes acting classes, doesn't cut it, but he's determined. At some point, he runs into a guy and meets a guy in his acting class named Greg Sestero. So they become best buds. Um, Sestero is like this young dude trying to make it in the industry, you know, like fired up, but you know, maybe doesn't have the talent to make it. Uh, but anyway, him and Tommy moved to LA together, uh, to quote, make it big in Hollywood to, to chase that dream. You know, all these dudes move out to Hollywood, uh, thinking they can make it. And that's what they do. So spoiler alert, they fail miserably. Uh, so Tommy and Craig decided to take matters into their own hands and make a movie themselves. So Tommy pins the script. He buys all the equipment. 
and rents all the set space and they set out to make their masterpiece. Uh, only they didn't really, they made the room and while it's a masterpiece in its own right, it isn't what you think of like a Shawshank Redemption by any means. So honestly, as, as a movie guy, which I consider myself what I somehow hadn't heard of the room until I saw the buzz about the disaster artist, uh, which is the title of the movie that James Franco just put out where James Franco plays a real life person named Tommy Wiseau. And all the trailers, you know, showed him directing a movie and kind of like a behind-the-scenes type uh, filming of a movie that seemed to be terrible. So The Room is regarded as the Citizen Kane of bad movies is what it's often referred to. So in another way to put it, the best shitty movie of all time. This movie is like the Michael Jordan of shitty movies, to use a sports analogy. And damn, it won six titles, six MVPs, and probably two Defensive Player of the Years as well. I mean, this, folks, takes the cake. I've seen a lot of shitty movies. This one... It's just something else. It's a whole other thing entirely. So to segue right into the room, um, I had never seen it. Uh, I saw that I'm based out of the Memphis, in the Memphis uh, metro area, in the Memphis community. And I noticed that Malco, the the big theater chain here in Memphis, was doing a a showing of the room, probably because in anticipation of the disaster artist coming out. So I saw that on Facebook, that Malco was doing that. And I said, well, I got to go see this. I've got, if I'm going to see this movie, it's going to be on the big screen. Um, and that would be, uh, to me, that was just the, the best way to see it. Also, I should mention that if any of you run to, and I'm sure you will after you listen, you run to uh, find the room online, you can't, man. It's fucking nowhere to be found. I mean, it is bizarre how hard it is to find online. Like, it's not on, like, uh, Netflix. You can't order it on Apple um, it's not on Amazon Prime Video. It's not on Hulu. Basically, any streaming service, you just can't see it. In fact, if you Google, how the hell do I watch The Room, there's an entire like message board discussing how damn hard it is to watch The Room. Um, so when I saw it, it was playing live like in a theater. I was really happy because I actually already tried to find it uh, and couldn't. So I roll into the Paradiso, sit down, and I realized very quickly that I'm in a room full of people that are the cult fans that I discussed earlier. These people have seen this movie countless times. And I could tell because we were looking around and everyone was getting ready. There were some props in play, which I'll mention later. And I, I knew I was about, I knew at that point that I was about to be in for one of a, a, just an absurd movie going experience. And like to put it, an absurd would be putting it lightly. I mean, it was unbelievable, unreal seeing it with a bunch of cult fans. So the movie's terrible. I mean, there, there's no secrets there. Uh, I bet if I tried to, if I successfully had watched it at home, I'd probably turn it about and about turned it off in about 15 damn minutes. I mean, the plot drags, the camera works uninspired. There are secondary characters and subplots introduced and then just totally abandoned. Um, there's no setups or payoffs, all the typical things you like to see in a script and all the typical things that go into telling the story in, in on, on the film were just gone because this dude didn't know what the fuck he was doing and wrote it. Uh, but you can tell it's written by like a guy who likes movies, but just didn't know how to tell a story himself. So the plot, it revolves loosely. I mean, this is a very general 10,000 foot view. It revolves around a love triangle between a character named Johnny, which is played by Tommy Wiseau himself. And then a character named Mark played by his buddy, Greg Sestero. So Johnny, you know, wrote this role for Mark to be in to, to consider it his big break which, of course, it, well, it ended up being, but not in the way that they imagined. And then Lisa, who uh, played by the less-than-famous Juliet Daniel, who I'm uh, sorry to hear for old Juliet, but she did not uh, necessarily come out of this movie 
um, a famous actress like she might have thought she was going to be. But pour one out. Uh, she killed it in this movie in one way or another. And uh, you guys got to see it. But So it's a love triangle between those three. So Lisa's dating Johnny. And then uh, I won't necessarily spoil it, but Mark comes into the picture. But here's the thing. None of it makes any damn sense. And Lisa ends up being like this weird, like sociopathic villain with no motivations whatsoever. Um, and that, that's part of what makes it enduring, though, is because like these characters show up and they seem to have huge plot, you know, huge uh, impact on the plot. But then ultimately you realize, oh, damn, I, I hadn't seen that character in forever. And they just never show up again. It's crazy. Now, the, the one thing I should mention is the movie leads off with like two hardcore sex scenes. I mean, just absolutely soft core porn esque, like gratuitous rose petals, like drapes around the bedposts, like light funk music playing in the background, like the bounce of wow wow type shit. And just when you think like they're all done, like two more pop up later. I mean, it's unbelievable. Uh, like, it, when you're watching them, you can't believe that anyone filmed it without like laughing out loud. And I have to imagine that on the set, these guys that were like hired hands holding the boom stand or whatever had to have been laughing their asses off the whole time this thing was being shot. I mean, they're even in, in the funniest parts during the sex scenes, there's dubbed in moans. So like a lot of times in movies, you won't capture all the sound live. So you have to do eight, what's called ADR, which is where you put dialogue in um, after the movie shot. So you'll bring the actor into the studio. He'll do it you know, into a microphone like I'm talking right now, and they'll put it in, dubbed in later. So in the sex scenes, there were multiple times where they would dub in like moans. So it'd be, you know, the p- people would be banging. And then suddenly you just hear this like out of nowhere, really loud in the speaker, this like exactly like that. And it was ridiculous. Like the mouth wouldn't be moving on the dude and you hear this like crazy moan. So just laughable. Now, one of my favorite storylines, like one of the abandoned storylines that I discussed earlier is um, Lisa, the, the girlfriend character. She has her mother is in the movie, plays like a prominent role doesn't do anything, but she keeps popping up in the movie. Um, and then at one point she like randomly brings up to her daughter that she has breast cancer. She says it and it's seeming like a somber moment, you know, like the, the, the music kind of dims, it gets a little darker. And then you're like, well, damn, man, how's this going to come into play? Like, is this going to affect the love triangle? Like, is there going to be some sort of scenes in the hospital later? Like that's pretty intense. Like this movie was kind of silly, but now there's cancer brought into the case and everyone knows you bring in cancer like you totally escalate the movie to another level of seriousness, like cheap plot device cancer. I mean, a horrible disease, cheap plot device. But so the so cancer is brought up and, uh, and then it's just never mentioned again, never brought up again, nor does it have anything to do with the movie whatsoever. Not once she mentions it. She brings it up. She has it. She shows up later in the movie multiple times, but it has nothing to do with anything. I mean, it's truly unbelievable the degree to how terrible the script is. So let me talk a little bit about, the the live viewing of this movie. If if you can somehow run out to the theater and see this movie live with an audience, with a cult audience, I highly recommend it. And I bet you can because the Disaster Artist is currently in theaters. Um, as of this is a, this is in January of 2018. So I imagine a lot of theaters will be doing what Malco did and playing the room um, for all the fans to go check out for people like me who hadn't seen it. So there's like like multiple quotes involved. There's, there's people that yell things throughout the entire movie. It's like watching like live theater. You're watching this movie and, and then the audience itself becomes like part of the whole fucking thing. So like, for instance, here's one example. I'm not going to try to, I could, I wouldn't do it justice if I tried to explain it to on this, on this podcast. So for instance, um, in the movie there, in, in a lot of the sets, 
there are uh, in the background of like a house, for instance, there's like the decorations that you'd see in a house, like framed pictures of shit. There's like framed pictures of spoons, like the, the kitchen utensil. They're just random spoons framed all over the place, which doesn't make any sense. Like why would, first of all, why would anyone frame you kitchen utensils? And then of the three kitchen utensils, I feel like the spoon is like maybe the least artistic one. So it doesn't make any sense. But yet, there they are. They're in the background. They keep showing up, too. Every time there's, like, lengthy dialogue scenes, you, like, look in the background, and there's a fucking spoon staring right at you. So the, the fans, whenever one shows up in the background, you have to yell, spoons! I mean, just loud as shit. Everyone yells it. Just, like, yells it as if, like, like a fucking emergency is about to happen. And then, I kid you not, like, they literally throw plastic spoons. So everyone brings in I guess everyone that's anyone, everyone that's a real room fan brings in a box of plastic spoons, like plastic silverware, just spoons. And as soon as they see the spoons, they yell spoons and they throw actual plastic spoons down in the audience. So typically the way this works is like the back row, for instance, will throw a bunch of spoons um, a few rows up. And then, you know, that, you know, that row will pick all those up and then throw them down. So every time spoons appear, they're like cascading down on the audience and they just go and work their way to the bottom. So, I mean, you're literally being pelted with actual plastic silverware while you're watching this movie. It's fucking hilarious. Like, I didn't know that was going to happen. And then it happened, and it took me forever to realize why they were yelling spoons, because I didn't realize there were spoons in the pictures in the background. Until finally I did, and I, it was just fucking hilarious. So, another funny thing that happens is, and, and it won't just me like talking about the funny things. You just got to see it to believe it, but... The movie takes place in San Francisco, um, California. And, you know, in movies, oftentimes the movie will begin or at some point there will be like an establishing shot where like they'll show, they'll pan over the cityscape, the skyline. And like, it'll just be, you'll be like, oh, I'm in New York. So then, you know, you're in New York for the rest of the movie, unless the movie tells you otherwise. Well, this movie takes place entirely in San Francisco, but there are just like a million shots in between scenes of like, San Francisco. So it's like, oh, I'm still in San Francisco. Then later you see like a trolley go by and you're like, yep, still San Francisco. Why do they keep telling me that? Then like the Golden Gate Bridge, they'll like pan along it. Like the whole fucking Golden Gate Bridge. They'll do like a 15 minute or a 15 second shot of the length of it for no reason. I think this guy probably like paid a guy a bunch of money to get all these shots and had to use them all because he felt like he was wasting money. But it was like amazing. Just amazing stuff here. Like amazing. So know what you're wondering. You're wondering right now. Who gets the most buckets in this movie? Who just like absolutely kills it? So me personally, and I'm sure reasonable minds can differ here, but I'm going to go with Peter, who's the unheralded nerd of the movie. So the guy shows up and the character's name is Peter. The the actor's name is, uh, I'm not exactly sure, but he shows up. He just hits home runs the whole time he's on screen. I mean, just absolutely like hits home runs. He just clears the bases every time. So then he disappears, never to be seen or explained for in the rest of the flick. Like, like he shows up, tries to psychoanalyze the main character, Johnny, and like how crazy his girlfriend is. Like, gives good advice. Like, he's the most reasonable character in the damn movie. Then he just disappears. Like, no explanation. At one point, Mark, one of the other characters, the, uh, the, the friend that, uh, that sort of betrays Johnny, literally holds Peter over the edge of a building and like, threatens to fucking kill him. And then like a seconds later, Peter instantly forgives him like they're old bros again. This is amazing stuff here, guys. I mean, you can't, I couldn't write. If I like someone said, write a bad movie. Like, I don't think anyone could do this. Like not to the degree this movie is. So all told uh, because of this live experience and because of the whole 
like totality of everything, dude, I got to give this movie four out of four barns. And, and those shits are all on fire too. I mean, unbelievable experience. I mean, it was a top 10 movie going experience in my life. I was laughing my ass off literally the whole time. And just the un, just the, the unrestrained and like joy of everyone that was there. And like these hardcore fans, like that sort of stuff is what, you know, is what movies are about, which is, you know, he ends up making this terrible movie that ends up becoming a classic and unites this whole group of people. So really like he was, you know, a whopping success, ironically enough. So now moving on to the disaster artist. So this is the 2017 movie. Um, it is James Franco directed. The, the script was penned by Scott Newstander and Michael Weber, who are a kind of a script writing pair. They wrote um, 500 Days of Summer and The Fault in Our Stars, for instance, both totally opposite yet emotionally enduring movies for sure. Um, at the same time, as I mentioned earlier, it's easy to make a flick enduring if you give a kid cancer in it. I'm sorry to say that kind of a cheating, kind of cheating there, Scott and Michael. I'm not going to call y'all on it um, too much, but just saying kind of cheating with the cancer there. So they don't do cancer in the disaster artists, except for obviously the, the, the mother who has cancer. Um, but so like, it's incredibly meta. First of all, that Franco, James Franco, he directs a real movie in which he plays a guy who directs his own movie. So there's like so many different like subtext going on here. And I can't imagine like the just sort of the, the the jokes made on set about the fact that they were like doing this. Now I'm definitely not a big Franco fan. I mean, beyond the fact that he slid in the DMs of a 17 year old, and also the fact that he knew she was 17 when he did it, so he couldn't even say later he was just ignorant. Like beyond that, I think he's he's just like something about Franco. You know, you either like him or you don't. But he just comes across like a little douchey and uh, like certainly full of himself. I guess all actors are to some extent, but to me, he's never earned the way he views himself. The only movie that James Franco was in that I thought he killed it was that 127 hours movie where he plays the dude that like gets trapped under the boulder in the, uh, the, the, the ravine in the rocks. Uh, he's like a mountain biker outdoorsy dude. And the whole movie basically takes place like in this, you know, in this ravine with this dude trapped. There's a few flashback scenes and like dream scenes too, but I thought Franco was great in that. I thought he killed it and, and really like kind of made that movie. And that, at that point I was like, okay, Franco, you, you know, okay, Franco, you did, you hit a shot, Franco, pat yourself on the back, go down play a little defense and, but don't get too full of yourself. And what did he do? He, uh, he gave up a couple quick buckets and he got full of himself right off the bat again. I mean, the guy, that's just who he is. Um, so the movie, it tells the tale of Tommy Wiseau, who we discussed earlier, who Franco plays James Franco and how he meets Greg Sestero played by Franco's real life brother, Dave Franco. Now I'm sure, I mean, I'm not the first person to say this and I'm sure everyone's already thought it, but let me be the, uh, you know, just another person to put it out there. I think the Franco brothers have a really weird vibe, like a little blades of glory type incestuous shit to the point where like you wonder kind of what's going on there. I mean, I'm not going to like imply that they're incestuous, but like they seem kind of incestuous. So take that as you will. Uh, I, you know, I can't have any proof, but it's a little weird. Something going on there, you know? So I know you're, you're also thinking, well, damn, uh, damn chief. The, who I know who got the most buckets in the room. That was Peter. Well, who got the most buckets in the disaster artist? Now, unfortunately, I've got to say, begrudgingly, of course, that James Franco absolutely kills it in this movie. He plays the ambiguously aged Eastern European accented Tommy Wiseau. Him doing the accents, hilarious. Him with the long black hair is hilarious. They even put some prosthetics on his face to give him the uh, 
the the classic Tommy Wiseau lazy eye. I mean, it's really like a funny. It's a lot of comedic chops with the role, but it's ultimately sad. Um, it's a it's a guy chasing his dreams who fails, and the movie is is really a it's really about friendship. It's it's of course the making of the room is a huge part of the movie, but the the movie centers on the relationship between Tommy Wiseau and Greg Sestero. So the Franco brothers give a chance to you know put forth this uh, this this pretty intense relationship on film, and I wonder too like. I haven't looked this up at all, but it seems almost like there was some some homoerotic type tone, like overtones between uh, Tommy and Greg. Like maybe Tommy was into him and Greg was a straight or, but Tommy's just a weird dude. Just like one of those like sexually ambiguous type people where you can't really pin him down. And certainly Franco plays him that way as well. Now, I'm not personally a huge fan of movies about people making movies. Like everyone, like the Academy loves that shit. All, all the Golden Globe, the Hollywood Foreign Press, they love that shit. Like the Birdmans and like, I mean, I, multiple examples come to mind. But just there are movies about people making movies. And to me, like, that's kind of cheating. I mean, but for some reason, people love these movies about like the inner workings of Hollywood and shit. And so, to be honest, unless you've seen The Room, the 2003 movie this is based on, uh, many of the jokes in this movie are going to fall flat for you. Like, they're... Very much inside jokes, according to all the jokes made about the 2003 movie. Um, there's, you know, there's a ton of callbacks to it. I mean, and, and just seeing who they cast in this movie to play the actors that played the characters in the room is also really hilarious. But it pokes the fun at all the things the hardcore cult fans have been making fun of for years. And I guess that's like kind of what you pay for them. I mean, that's the price of admission was that you wanted to see them pay homage to this uh, to the room. So. I told you who got buckets. Franco did um, the six man of the award. Uh, six man award in this movie goes to Brian Cranston. I, I know you're thinking Walter White shows up. Well, it was before he played Walter White. Actually, this movie chronologically takes place somewhere around 2002 and then 2003 as well. So he shows up playing himself while he was still shooting Malcolm in the Middle. So while he was playing the dad on Malcolm in the Middle, which is like the hilarious first role that everyone got to know Cranston. It's hard to play yourself in a movie or you have to play yourself doing something that you didn't do. I think that'd be a huge clusterfuck. And like, you'd be thinking about it, overthinking it. Franco, I'm sorry, Cranston kills it. So it got me thinking, what can't Cranston do? I mean, maybe we should have cast Cranston in this movie instead of uh, James Franco, but hell, they're not hiring me to cast these things like they should. There's also like a billion cameos from all the James Franco, Seth Rogen faithful. Seth Rogen's in it too, plays a script doctor, and like uh, assistant director. Like you got the Danny McBride here and Key from Key and Peele, Judd Apatow. One person I missed though, and I was looking for him, was uh, Michael Sears, little bitch ass. That dude did not show up unless he like, but I just didn't notice. But he must have been on a different set or something because very disappointed not to see him in there. And uh, and Jonah Hill too. Jonah Hill didn't make an appearance. Very disappointed about that. Um, Jonah Hill also like that dude loses weight and gains it like just an insane amount. Every time I see that guy, he's like looks like a totally different guy. So another important shout out goes to Zach Efron who shows up playing the super angry drug dealer um, that shows up in the middle of the room and then disappears never to be seen again. Like half the fucking characters. Now Efron really hams it up and it's absolutely hilarious. Like I'm buying a ton of Efron stock right now. And I really hope like really, really hope that he never tries to do like an artsy Oscar flick. Like don't try to be like, you know, play within yourself Efron. Like, Understand your role. Your role is not to, you know, cry on command. 
Uh, your role is not to play like a disabled person or something. Like you literally just need to be the jock bro that is you, I assume. And you just have to do all these jock bro roles to be true to yourself, Zach. Like if you listen to this man, just don't do it. Don't take that Oscar bait role. Just like do you, man. So after the, the, the flick at some point towards like the climax of the movie, it hits like the stereotypical all is lost moment where the uh, Franco brothers, uh, their characters, Tommy and Greg destroy their relationship. And then they uh, ultimately, they mend the fences at the premiere of the room with all the cast and crew is there. And then Tommy convinces Greg to show up. He says, no, it's going to be great. And then they, they turn on the movie and all the people in the audience are shocked at how bad the movie they just made is. They are shocked. They all look at each other like their careers are ruined. And most of them were, but, uh, but we don't, we don't talk about that kind of dark shit here. And they just can't believe it. They can't believe it. It could actually be that bad that the movie that when they were making, they thought, man, this could really be bad. Is actually as bad as they thought. But then slowly, but surely that shock, that appall starts to turn to laughter and everyone starts to laugh, laugh their asses off. People are enjoying it. And then we realize that even the shittiest movies have a way of touching the heart. So that's, that's the, uh, that's the chief's like message there. That's the, the heartwarming message that comes out of the disaster artist. Everyone kisses and makes up and curtain. And that was important. I think that that was kind of probably what happened to Tommy. He, he realized that he didn't make this super dramatic, intense movie that maybe he intended, but that it brought joy and entertainment to people in a different way. And movies that come out don't always live up to the director and writer's intentions. And they only live up to the degree they're interpreted, right? Audience makes a movie what a movie is. If audiences see it one way, that's what it is. Perception is reality, folks. Um, all in all, though, I'd give The Disaster Artist 2.5 out of 4 barns. Now, those barns are on fire if you've seen The Room, because that makes the experience. I would, I would highly recommend seeing The Room before you see this. If you don't, like, I think you're going to be missing out on a lot of the humor here. It's mostly room-based humor. I mean, there's some stuff, too, that just is objectively funny. And, like, of course, to see Franco ham up the role is very entertaining. Just a ridiculous character that, uh, that is just funny that he exists. I think if you like the Franco-Rogan-type uh, movies, like This is the End, for instance, you could certainly do much worse. I mean, it's fun, it's lighthearted, and it just uh, it's a movie about some passionate characters just trying to make it in this damn world, which aren't we all, right? I think it deserves the, it's been nominated for a lot of stuff. So it's been, it's been nominated for Golden Globes, SAG Awards, all those sort of artsy type movie awards um, for best picture, best screenplay. And then um, and it was, adapt- I should say that the screenplay was adapted from the book of the same title, The Disaster Artist as well. So it's a best adapted screenplay, not best original. Um, and uh, of course, acting too, I'm sure. I mean, Franco has gotten a lot of nominations for his role as Tommy Wiseau. And, um, and I think the nominations are deserved. And in fact, at the Golden Globes, uh, Franco won. Frank, Franco won Best Lead Actor in a Comedy because, of course, the Golden Globes separate their movies into comedy and drama for whatever reason, and uh, whereas the Oscars do not. So it will be interesting to see if he... I'm sure he'll get nominated for the Oscar, but it will be interesting to see if he wins. I, I would doubt it. I think uh, Donald Lewis is probably going to win for uh, Phantom Thread, but uh, we'll talk Phantom Thread in a different pod another day. So the movie, it tries a little too hard. If I had to like fault it for something, you know, it's, it's uh, it tugs at your, it tugs at you a little too hard and you get the humor is a little too forced. Um, and I think like most of the humor should be born out of just these characters being ridiculous people. And um, there shouldn't be more like kind of Rogan type. 
you could tell Rogan probably improv some lines on the set. And it was just kind of like, come on, dude, like, this is funny enough. We don't need you to say some like shit about someone's dick. And then, you know, and then everyone like laugh in your goofy Rogan laugh. Like just let it be funny on its own two legs. You know, don't, don't Rogan it up, man. In fact, I think Rogan needs to stop Roganing. I think Rogan, someone needs to tell Rogan, Rogan, you're Roganing too hard, bro. Like just chill out. And then maybe, you know, maybe we can be, uh, we can go a couple Rogan free weeks or months. Um, I think Sausage Party is perhaps the Roganiest thing ever. Do not see that movie. And if you do, you'll know what Rogany is. Um, so, but ironically, like the desperate nature of this movie, it like kind of mirrors the real life Tommy Wiseau, like the, the forced humor and, uh, and his aspirations to be taken seriously in Hollywood. So then the movie itself, because it's so, it tries so hard, kind of ends up like making sense. Maybe Franco intended it. Maybe Franco was so into the role of Tommy Wiseau that even the movie about Tommy Wiseau tried too hard, just as Tommy's would have done. So, uh, I mean, I don't want to give Franco that much credit, um, but maybe, maybe that's what he intended. Uh, so, folks, check them both out. Check out The Disaster Artist. Check out The Room first. I think you'll be entertained. Um, I would highly recommend taking some friends, take some plastic spoons to The Room, sneak in a, a little flask of some, uh, some liquor if you're a drinker, and, uh, and sip, a little, sip some shit during the whole thing and make it a lot more fun. I'll tell you that right now. And just enjoy the idea that movies don't always have to be serious. They don't have to be about some dramatic, like super dramatic ass shit that they can just be exactly what they originally intended to be. And that is transportation to another place. That is transformative experiences that take you out of the real world, that you're nine to five, that you can go enjoy, sit in a movie, lights go dark and sort of be taken somewhere else and just enjoy yourself. But I recommend them both. Um, would love to hear y'all's comments on the site. Uh, if you do get a chance to go out there and check it out. But, uh, but again, this is The Chief. I'm closing out this episode of In the Can, which is part of the Barn Burner Podcast Network. We will be coming to you with Oscar picks once those nominations roll in here in the next few weeks. Um, and then we, we may even pot about it. I'm not sure yet. Or it could just be an article. It's an exciting time. Um, this, is a, this is a time when all the awesome movies roll into the theaters and sort of the world at large outside of L.A. and New York are able to get in there and uh, check out all these great achievements in film. So I hope at the Oscars, at the ceremony, we're able to steer clear of social justice and simply celebrate the fantastic year in film. Um, film, of course, is snooty as folks call it. And you know, I, but, but I know we're just one Natalie Portman soapbox away from it being ruined. Uh, so with that said, uh, peace out, film buffs. Or as Tommy might say, oh, bye, Mark. And that'll make sense if you see it. All right, y'all. Don't forget to check out The Barn Burner at www.the-barnburner.com. Peace out, y'all. This is The Chief signing out. You are my